Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing here. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. Amen. You ever watch television or at a sporting event and you see somebody do something and the first thought that you have is, I could never do that. About four weeks ago, I traveled literally to the other side of the planet on the western shore of Australia to preach in a crusade, a convention there called a Keswick Convention. It was founded years and years ago. Men like Major Ian Thomas and Andrew Murray have preached there through the years. And it's a great honor to go there and be a part of that. And so I took my wife and our youngest daughter, Faith, with me to make that trip because I don't know if I'd ever be back in Australia again. And on our way back to the United States, we stopped in the city of Sydney, spent a few days just to see that city. And the defining landmark of the city of Sydney is the Sydney Opera House. If you see any symbols about the city of Sydney, Australia, it's usually that image of the Sydney Opera House. And so we went and we toured the city Opera House. And while we were touring the city Opera House, my wife and daughter found out that the weekend we were there, there was some ballets that were taking place in the Sydney Opera House, and they wanted, and we figured, once in a lifetime opportunity, let's go to a ballet. Now, you got to understand something. I am from Alabama. <laughs> there is not a whole lot of ballets where I'm from. As a matter of fact, other than flipping the channels and crossing PBS, I don't think I've ever seen one in my lifetime. But I thought, my girls want to go, we'll go to the ballet. So that's what we did. We go to the ballet on this Saturday night. We're there, and we're watching this unfold before our eyes. And I got to be honest with you, I was as lost as a ball in high weeds. I didn't have any idea what was going on. So much so that about halfway through at the intermission, I tapped these two little older ladies sitting in front of me on the shoulder who looked like the two old gentlemen in the Muppets, you know, thing. They're, they're sitting right here in front of me, just soaking it all in and all its glory. And I said, ma'am, could you please help me? I don't have a clue what's going on here. Could you let me understand what's going on? And she explained to me that this was a contemporary ballet. And I thought, great, I've never seen a traditional one. I don't know the difference. She said, well, here's the difference. A traditional ballet, like a Swan Lake or Romeo and Juliet, they tell a story. The contemporary ballet does not tell a story at all. And I thought, wonderful, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be because I don't have a clue what they're trying to tell me with this. So once they removed the pressure of me trying to figure out the story, I was able to sit back and just watch. 
And I sat there in amazement at the grace and the strength of these performers on this stage. I mean, the beauty with which they move and the strength, these guys that look like little bitty guys. They're, they're picking up these girls like they're pieces of paper and just twisting them around over their head. And I'm sitting there going, I could never do that. I think sometimes we read the stories in Scripture. And we see these characters, these names of people in the Bible. And as we're reading their stories and seeing the way that God is using them, maybe we don't say it out loud, but as we're sitting there reading it in our soul and in our heart, we're thinking, I could never do that. I could never be used of God like that. I want to encourage you this morning. The same God. The same God that dwelt in every believer in the Bible. The same God that worked in extraordinary ways through their lives is the same God that lives inside of you and I as a follower of Jesus. And let me tell you what the Bible says about that God. Look at it in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 on the screen. It says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power. What is that? His presence in me according to the power that works within us. Here's what that means. As you sit here today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the same God that indwelled every believer in the scripture, the same God that empowered every believer in the scripture, the same God that accomplished great things through every one of their lives is the same God that lives inside of you. And as you sit here, here's what the Bible said. You dream it up. You think it up. I don't care how big you dream. You cannot begin to fathom all that God is able to do in and through your life. If you're visiting with us, we are walking through a series right now that we've called A Blast from the Past. And what we're doing is exploring some life lessons through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And in turning to 1 Samuel chapter 16, today we come to a person that is arguably one of the most well-known characters in the Bible. Now, for the first time in the Bible, in 1 Samuel 16, the Bible mentions his name. It's the first time that he's recorded in Scripture, but let me just tell you, it won't be the last time. As a matter of fact, as you study through 1 Samuel, this particular character is mentioned over 1,000 different times in the Bible. Now, to give you some comparison, his name is mentioned over 800 more times than Abraham, over 300 more times 
than Moses, and even 173 more times than Jesus himself. Who are we talking about? We're talking about David. And when we hear the name David in the Bible, David is one of those characters who is associated with great stories. Usually when you say the name David and you follow it with the word and, the next word people fill in the blank with is what? Goliath, right? Everybody thinks about David and Goliath. Now, we're going to be talking about that next weekend, the story in 1 Samuel 17 of David and Goliath. But David is known for stories like David and Goliath. David is known for writing the longest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms. David is known for being the greatest king of Israel. David is known for being that one that's most well-known in the line and lineage of Jesus, the one that gave us the Messiah. When we look at a man like David, we can think, I could never be used like David. And yet here's the lesson I want to give you from this chapter of Scripture. God accomplishes extraordinary things through ordinary people whose hearts are yielded to Him. If that's encouraging this morning, say, Amen. Any ordinary people in the room today? David was not extraordinary. We think about David and immediately we think of this great leader in the Bible. But did you know that David was considered by his own family to be the most insignificant person in his family? We're going to talk about that in just a few moments as we unpack it. David had nothing extraordinary about him. David is the first Cinderella. He was the one in the family that never got invited to the party. He was given the worst task, the worst chores. He was overlooked. He was insignificant. He was not important. And yet, listen to what the Bible said about David in 1 Samuel 13. doesn't mention him by name, but it talks about him. Look what it says. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people. God discovered in David a man after his own heart. And as we read in 1 Samuel 16, we're going to identify some characteristics of what it looks like to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. So 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse number 1, it's going to be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, let's read it. Here's what it says. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, how can I go? What if Saul hears about it? He's going to kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you. For all you city folks, that's a cow (laughs) of the female persuasion. And say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. 
You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? Here's what happened. The man of God shows up to hold a church service, and it wasn't time to have a church service. Everybody panics, thinks something's wrong. Man, what's going on, Samuel? And said, no, everything's all right. I'm in peace. Verse 5. He said, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they had entered, he looked at Eliab, one of Jesse's sons, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said the Lord hadn't chosen him either. Verse 9, next Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said the Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass by before Samuel. And Samuel said the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? And he said, well, there's, there's one more. He's the youngest. And behold, he's out with the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him here, for we're not sitting down until he comes. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. With beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Some characteristics in these first 13 verses about what it looks like to be a man or woman of God after God's own Heart. Now, notice as we walk through these, these are not going to be outward abilities. They're inward realities. I'm trying the time that we have to give you five of them. We'll just skim by a couple, but let me give them to you. Here's the first one. A man or woman after God's own heart has a love for the things of God. The Bible tells us in verse 7 about David here, It says in verse 7, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, our culture, we often measure the worth of someone by things that we can see on the outside. Their wealth, their power, their influence, their popularity their position in society. We look at all those things on the outside and we measure the worth. We measure the success. We measure the value by looking on things on the outside. But the Bible says God doesn't look that way. God looks at the heart. And when God found David, he found a man after his own heart. Now, what does it mean? To say that phrase. It's a phrase that we use all the time, right? You've said it about somebody before, I'm sure. You've said, oh, that's a person right after my own heart. What do we mean when we say that? Well, it dawned on me this last Monday 
Pastor Travis and I flew to Salt Lake City, Utah. We were hosting a vision tour for a group of pastors from all over the country that had come in to talk with us about getting involved in planting new churches in Salt Lake City, Utah. And so we're there with all these pastors. Now, on the way to the airport last Monday morning, Pastor Travis had told me, hey, my wife and I will pick you up. We'll go to the airport together. I said, great. And uh, he's, But when they got there, it wasn't just Pastor Travis and his wife. His two little bitty girls had gotten up early, two little toddlers, and they said, we want to go to the airport. We want to go with you. So they're all in the van. We're going together. And like little kids, you know, not super talkative in the morning. And I think uh, they get that from their dad. You know, Travis, he's chatty Kathy. I mean, he's just always talking, talking. So I'm trying to kind of get some conversation going in the car. So I, I turn to Scarlett, who's the talking one of the two. The other one's not quite old enough yet. And I looked at Scarlett and I said, Scarlett, what do you like to eat for breakfast? And her daddy's driving and he says, say oatmeal with blueberries. And without, she didn't say a word. She just took the candy bar that was in her hand and just raised it up like this. And here's what I thought to myself. That's a girl after my own heart. Now, when I said that in my heart, here's what I meant. She loves what I love. When you say that somebody is a person after your own heart, what you're saying about them is that that's somebody that loves the same things that you love. When God said that David was a man after his own heart, he meant that on the inside, David loved the things of God. And the New Testament confirms this. Let me show it to you in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Look what it says about David. It says, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. Then look what it says. Who will do what? Say it out loud. All my will. That word all is a word that means all the whole, but it also means each individual part. That word will, one Greek scholar said, is a word that means that which pleases and creates joy. Here's what the Bible says. God said, when I found David, I found somebody who was consumed with a passion for that which brought me joy and pleasure. What was on God's heart, David sought to have it on his own heart. And you see it as he writes in the book of Psalms. Let me just show you some examples from one chapter, Psalm 119, of how David was passionate about the things of God. Psalm 119, beginning in verse number 18, look what it says. David said, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. The consuming prayer of David's heart, God, let me see what you see. God, give me the eyes to see these things the way you see them. Lord, open my eyes that I can even see it the way you do. Then look down at verse 24 in Psalm 119. Listen to what he said. David said, your testimonies, God, are my delight. That, that word delight means extreme pleasure or satisfaction. David said, God, what brings me joy is what brings you joy. Then he said, they are my counselors. It's a phrase that means that which guides me in my daily decisions. Here's what that means. David was consumed with a passion that every decision that he made daily was made in light of, does this please my God? Does this honor my God? Does this keep his law? Then look at verse 71 and 72. David said, it is good for me that I was, say it out loud, 
Whoa, 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 whoa. David said, it's good for me if I am afflicted so that I may learn your statutes. Here's what David said. God, whatever it takes to get on my heart, what's on your heart? Lord, whatever the pain, whatever the circumstance, God, whatever it takes, it's good if I'm afflicted. Then look what he said. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Then one more, verse 147 of this chapter, all the way through it, you hear it. David said, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait on your word. Here's David before the sun comes up, pleading with God, God put on my heart. What's on your heart? David was no superhero. He was an ordinary man who passionately pursued an extraordinary God. So let me ask you a question. Do you love what God loves? Is the passion of your life to have on your heart what's on his heart? You know what I find myself passionate about a lot of times? A lot of times in my life, I'm more concerned about getting on God's heart, what's on my heart, than I am getting what's on His heart on my heart. I got a need. I got a desire. I got a want. Oh, I get all passionate about making sure that what's on my heart gets on His heart. David was consumed with a desire to make sure that what was on his heart was what was on the heart of God. I'll give you a second one. A man or woman after God's own heart demonstrates humility towards God and others. Humility. David, I told you a moment ago, was viewed... As the most unimportant member of his family. Look at it again over there in verse number 11. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your kids? Is all your children? And he said, well, there's one more. But Samuel, he's the runt. He's, He's the youngest. The word youngest in Hebrew. You know what it literally means? Here's what it means. Literally. Small, little, insignificant, unimportant. Wouldn't you love for your dad to introduce you like that? (laughs) Well, I got one more, but he's the little fella. He don't amount to much. He's never accomplished much. Matter of fact, we just give him the lowest task in the family. We let him go out and watch the sheep. It's dirty and smelly out there, but we figure he can't mess too much up out there. Not only that, if you read in verse 5, When Samuel showed up, he invited the whole town to attend this worship service, but he singled out one family. 
He said to Jesse, Jesse, everybody's invited, but I want you to know it's imperative. Your family's got to show up. Now, he didn't tell them why, but he knew that God had said the next king's coming through Jesse's family. So he went to Jesse and said, Jesse, it's imperative. I've consecrated that your whole family be there. And they didn't even think to invite David. It's almost as if they said, if something great's happening... Surely, surely it doesn't have anything to do with David. He's just out in the field. And there's no evidence in Scripture that David even fought against it. He never said, that's not fair. He never said, what about me? And it gets even worse. Because you know what happened. We just read it. They anoint David as king. And here's what I love. It says it there in verse number 13. It says that they anointed him in the midst of his brothers. (laughs) It's almost as if the Lord said, I'll show you who I'm looking at. Right there's all the brothers that had strutted in with all their strength and all their leadership qualities and all their gifts and abilities. And he said, nope, 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 nope. Got anybody else? Well, there's David. And right in front of his brothers, they say, that's him. So you'd think things would have changed. But look over in chapter 17. You're going to get there next week. But look at chapter 17, verse 14. David was the youngest. They're still introducing him as the runt. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Here's what's happened. Several of the brothers are off now fighting the war with Saul, fighting the Philistines. And David, who's been anointed as the next king of Israel, what's he doing? He's still out in the field with the sheep. Skip down to verse 17. Then Jesse said to David, his son... Take now for your brothers an epath of roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. You see what? They're still using David as an errand boy. Here's the next king of Israel. We need some food to be delivered to your brothers. Could you run, take that to them, check on them, and get back here as quick as you can. The sheep still need to be taken care of. Now, can I just be honest with you? I'm afraid that my flesh might have spoken a little bit differently than David's did. I'm afraid that I might have had a conversation with his dad and said, Hey, Dad, excuse me, uh, you remember that little ceremony thing we did a few weeks ago? Do you remember what Samuel said? That I am going to be the next king of Israel. That I am the one that God has chosen. Don't you think they ought to be bringing me some food? Don't you think they ought to be checking on my welfare? Yet David didn't do that. He just served his brothers, served his father. (laughs) I got to be honest with you, I think I might have had a conversation with more than Jesse. I might have had a conversation with the Lord. 
I want to be where David is, but, but a lot of times, here's what I, Lord, I'm not happy with this shepherding work. Lord, you have called me for something greater than being with these sheep. God, you've, you've called me to a bigger platform than this. I shouldn't be serving food. I'm going to be the next king of Israel. But instead, in humility, he was faithful where he was to serve his brothers, serve his dad, serve the king, and wait on God's timing. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. When you have a servant's heart, you're humble. You do as you're told. You don't rebel. You respect those in charge. You serve faithfully and quietly without concern over who gets the credit. That's David. Somebody said to me once, Vance, if you're too big for the little things, you're probably too little for the big things. David modeled Paul's description of humility in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what it says. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what God's looking for in our lives. Let me ask you a question. In Christ-like humility, am I willing to serve others? Are there some places of service in the kingdom of God that you feel like are beneath you? Not David. Let me give you a third one. A man or woman after God's own heart is led by the Spirit of God. Verse 13, the Bible says, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David, and from that day, or came mightily upon David from that day forward. David was someone who knew what it was to walk in the empowering of the Holy Spirit and David did not want to take a single step unless he knew the Spirit of God was leading him. Let me give you a great example of it. Turn over to 2 Samuel. We're not going to get to 2 Samuel in our study, but 2 Samuel chapter 5 gives you a great example of this. 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 17. Now David has been installed as king by this point. Listen to what it says. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, 
all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Here's what's going on. The Philistines have decided we are going to attack this new King David. We're going to destroy the nation of Israel. They brought all their army. They spread out in this valley and said, we are ready to fight. Now, here's the new king of Israel. He'd been in battles many times in his life. It would have been very easy to say, all right, troops, game on. Let's get at them. Let's go get them. I'm the king. Let's go fight. I can win this victory. But look what it says in verse 19. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Here's what David said. I'm not going to let my circumstances dictate my, my response and my reaction. I'm not going to let my circumstances dictate my decision. I'm going to wait on the Spirit of God to lead me. I want to hear what God has to say about this. And look what it says. It says, Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal Perazim, and David or defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, the, he named that place Baal Perazim. Here's what David said David said, God, you get all the glory. I didn't do this, you did this because I followed your leadership and your spirit. Then look at the very next verse, verse 22. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Next day, the exact same circumstance. Now, you know what most of us would have done? Well, I had victory yesterday. God told me what to do. So here's the same circumstance. I already know how to do this. Let's go. Let's get them. God said, go up. But look what David did. Verse 23. When David inquired of the Lord... You know what David understood? Yesterday's grace is not sufficient for today's battle. Just because God led me one way yesterday doesn't mean even in the same circumstances today, he's going to lead me the same way again. As a matter of fact, look what the story says. Then he said, you shall not go directly up. Now, yesterday God said, go up. Now he says, don't go up. Why? Because God wanted to work in such a way that nobody gave the praise and the glory to a military strategy to a king. He wanted them to know it is his hand that was at work. Look what it says. But you shall not go directly up, circle around behind them, come at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly. For then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Then verse 25, listen to this. David did so. Just as the Lord had commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines. Here's a question Am I careful to make sure that every decision, every action, every reaction is being led by the Spirit of the Lord? You know, one of the dangers of walking with God for any length of time is we think we begin to know how He works and we got it figured out. And so we see situations and we say, oh, well, I know how the Lord led me last time, so I know how to handle this. Success can often produce 
a lack of dependence on the Spirit of God. Past success can woo me away from sensitivity to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in fighting spiritual battles. My David. Let me give you a fourth one. We're just going to mention this. I'm not going to spend much time here. But a man or woman of God, or a man or woman after God's own heart, displays great faith in God. David was a man of great faith. As you read the Psalms, as you read the first and second Samuel, first and second Chronicles, you see David next week in, in David and Goliath. You see David demonstrate great confidence in the Lord. He had complete dependence on the goodness and the grace and the sovereignty of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you trust God? Everybody look at me. Do you trust God? Then what you worried about? What are you frustrated about? Why are you so concerned? David's a man that walked in deep faith in God. Now, maybe you're hearing all of these things and you're thinking, Pastor, I know you said we, we got the same God living inside of us, but even with these internal realities, I've already blown it. I, I've messed it up many times. I well, the last one I hope is going to be encouraging to you because when you think about David, one of the great things about David is David had some huge missteps in his life. David and Goliath. The next one that you think of is David and Bathsheba. You see, being a man or woman after God's own heart does not mean that we're perfect. David was not perfect. But being a man or woman after God's own heart does mean this. They walk in repentance before God. You see, being a man after God's own heart didn't mean that David did not sin in his life. It meant that when he did... And was confronted by it, by the Spirit of God. He responded rightly to the conviction of God in his life. And yielded the control of his life back over to him. David's great misstep that we all know about. David and Bathsheba, adultery that led to murder, that led to deceit. But then the prophet Nathan came. And he confronted David over the sin in his life. And it broke David. And when David was confronted, he then wrote Psalm 51 that you can read on your own and hear that psalm of confession. After Psalm 51, David wrote Psalm 32. Listen to what he said. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. You know what that is? That's a phrase that describes misery. You know who the most miserable people on planet earth are? Not lost people. Lost people don't know what they don't know. The most miserable people on planet earth are saved people. Trying to live apart from the will of God in their life. David said, 
My body, the sin, was grieving. I was walking in it, and yet I was wasting away. Look what he says next. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Being a man or woman after God's own heart doesn't mean that I never do anything wrong. It's when I do and am confronted. There's a right response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God about what's going on in my life. Jim Cimbala said it this way, and I'll close with this quote. He said, anything and everything is possible with God if we approach him. With a broken spirit. A man or woman. After God's own heart. Loves what he loves. Humbly serves. Humbly. Serves God and others. A man or woman after God's own heart. Is led by the spirit of God. In every decision they make every day. A man or woman after God's own heart walks in great faith in God. And a man or woman after God's own heart walks in repentance towards God when they're wrong. And when God finds in us those inner realities, God accomplishes extraordinary things through ordinary people whose hearts are yielded to him.